I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, The True and False Self. The first and most important role for every disciple of Jesus is to be with Jesus. But how? Thank you, guys. If we haven't met, my name is Josh. I am one amongst many who help lead this thing called Fan City Church. Uh, when my wife and I were dating, she lived on the West Coast and I the East. I was traveling at the time full-time playing music with sporadic, unpredictable time off, and both of us were young and had little to no money. There were no smartphones in those days, no FaceTime, no Skype. We had to wait to call each other until after 9 p.m. when, as per our cell phone plans, we enjoyed unlimited minutes until the next morning. But when the stars aligned, when I had a few days off and I could scrape together enough money to buy a plane ticket, I would go see her. And we were young and dorky and in love, so we would count down the days and we would, you know, we ran to one another and embraced in airports and train stations in front of everybody. It's real embarrassing to think about now. And we, we dreaded every visit coming to an end. And we dated for three years this way, all the way through our engagement. And when we finally got married in 2007, it was exciting for all the same reasons one would look forward to being married. But now, finally, we can be with each other all the time, not on separate sides of the country. And more than 14 years later, I still feel that way. When you love someone, a spouse, a kid, a friend, a family member, there is no real substitute for withness. And the same is true with God. Tonight, we are beginning a series called The True and False Self. We actually have some recommended reading for you guys. You don't have to memorize these. I'm going to take you through them, and I got something to tell you about them. With The Gift of Being Yourself by David G. Benner, um, Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser, which is a book that we've recommended in like a dozen different series so far, and one of my favorite, all-time favorite books about discipleship to Jesus, Henry Nouwen's Life of the Beloved, um, the Deeper Journey by Robert Mulholland Jr. And finally, my actual favorite book about discipleship to Jesus, Abba's Child by Brennan Manning. Um, we're trying something new this time around. We do recommended reading all the time for series like these, uh, but we have a high value on reading and engaging the mind and what it means to follow Jesus. So each of these books is actually available to buy here at church, just outside in the annex. We do not make any profit off of these books. That's not what this is about. We just, like I said, have a high value on reading. We want to make these resources as available and as accessible as possible. So if you want, after the gathering, they will be out there. And you can buy a copy for the same price that we'd paid for them and take it home with you to read. If we run out tonight, there will be more next week. Now, tonight is our prologue to what follows. The leaders of Van City have been talking about this for a while. We really feel as if God can and will do something important in our church in the weeks to come. It has a lot to do with the heart, the soul, the mind. 
But before we really get into it, I want to set the stage for this idea of what it means to be with God. So tonight is going to sound a little bit heady, a little bit luxury, but I hope it will set the stage for the weeks to come. Now, before Easter, we were in a series called More of the Holy Spirit. And in that series, we offered this working definition of the Holy Spirit coined by a scholar called Gordon Fee. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. Or put another way, the Spirit is God's person, God's power, and God's present. Now, the Holy Spirit is God's person. We talked about the way that lots of people who follow Jesus, when they think of the Holy Spirit, they imagine the Spirit as kind of an abstract force. But for Jesus and for the authors of scriptures and and for the early church, the Spirit was not a concept, not a symbol, not a force. The Spirit is a person. But the Spirit is also God's power. We talked about the way that Jesus accomplished miracles. If you read the gospel stories, the biographies of Jesus, he healed the sick, he resuscitated dead people, he cast out demons. And he did all that not by virtue of being God, per se, but because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit as a man, which is exactly why we, uh, or as the New Testament carries on, rather, we see Jesus' apprentices, his closest friends, his new apprentices, whoever, uh, the people who actually never even met Jesus, they just found out about him later as the years wore on, they all go on to do the same kinds of things that Jesus did. They perform miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, all that stuff, because Jesus was the prototype for all of his followers. Just as he was empowered by God's Spirit to do miracles, so too can all of Jesus' followers be empowered by the same Spirit to do the same kinds of things. Now tonight, to set the stage for the weeks to come, I want to get into the idea of the Spirit as God's presence. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. If you're new to the Bible, Exodus is just the second book in right after Genesis. A lot of ground to cover tonight. I'm going to have you guys flipping all through your Bibles. Brace yourself. You'll be fine. You guys feeling sharp? You awake? Yeah. Vanessa, are you okay? Okay, yeah, she's just nervous. Now, many think of the Bible as this enormous, ancient kind of scrapbook of cobbled together rules and fortune cookie proverbs and weird history. But the Bible is actually, as many of you know, a story, one cohesive story. And that story begins and ends with a picture of God with his people. Withness is important to the Bible's story, and it is important to God. If you know the opening sequence in Genesis, Adam and Eve, the garden, all that, we read in it that God would walk in the garden in the cool of day. And we don't know exactly what that means in the specific sense, But whatever it means, everyone agrees that the author of Genesis meant to depict a world in which there was no barrier at all between God and humanity. And then, much, much later, at the conclusion of the Bible story, the climax of a book we call The Revelation, we read this amazing, beautiful glimpse into a world made absolutely new. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So the Bible begins and ends depicting God with his people. But between the beginning and the end, you have the middle. It's a big, long middle. We're still in the dang thing, technically. 
And in the middle, the idea of God being with his people doesn't work like it did in the garden or the way it will at the end in the renewal of all things. The withness gets complicated. If you know the story, things go awry really early on. In the garden story, when faced with the decision between God in charge or themselves in charge, humanity chooses themselves and are consequently put out of God's uninterrupted presence, which is a bizarre concept. After all, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. There's nowhere that God is not. But what it means is that in the story, for Adam and Eve to be shut out of God's presence, it's that there has been a compromise in their experience of God's nearness. In theology, we call this God's manifest presence. It's this idea when the heaviness of God's closeness is palpable. Even though God is everywhere at all times, there are times, unique times, when God is so close you just feel it. Some of you know what I mean. It could be when you're caught up in worship or meditation, contemplation, art, nature, a moment of rapturous love. God's felt presence becomes incredibly, joyously overpowering and undeniable. That is the way God's withness was intended to be. But post-Genesis 3, after the fall, God's manifest presence, his undeniable nearness, is now the exception to the rule. We don't experience God's palpable nearness all the time. We experience it sometimes. We are born at a distance from God, so to speak. His felt closeness is not our default experience. And all that reads as a huge bummer. But the good news is that really the entire story of the Bible itself is a story about the lengths to which God will go to repair the breach we created and restore the normalcy of his manifest presence. The Bible is a story about a God who designs an order in which he might be with his beloved, which that's you guys, people, but God's love is unrequited. We don't want God. Well, we do and we don't. We're like toddlers. We want God when it works for us, and we don't when we don't. And we have no freaking idea of the implications of either thing, and we despair without God, but then thrash against his arms when he holds us, and we make an awful mess of everything, and then we look up and shout, where are you, God? And when God intervenes to do so, we scream, no, and run away. That's kind of the story of the Bible on repeat. But if we are the belligerent toddlers in the story, God is the benevolent, patient father who stops at nothing to rescue us, his love, to restore a world in which he is truly with his beloved. It's not rule-keeping or obedient drones or mindless worship to inflate his ego that God is after. It's withness. Let me show you. We're going to take a quick tour through scriptures, stopping at these major landmarks. Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple, exile, Jesus, the spirit, the church, and the the body. So we're going to begin in Exodus 19. Look alive. Here we go. Let's read Exodus 19, beginning with verse 9. Yahweh said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Skip down to verse 16. Things are going to get really crazy. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Yahweh descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. And the story goes on. In it, you can read it on your own time, God comes to Israel in true spectacle. It's fire and smoke, thunder and light, a trumpet for some reason. And it is terrifying. Israel, in the story, they won't even go up there, which, you know, like, oh man, Israel, they're so lame. But it's like, I don't know, I kind of, <laughs> there's a trumpet coming from the mountain and smoke billing. Oh, I might send Moses too. But Moses has to go by himself. They won't even go with him. Then, just a few pages after that, turn to the right to Exodus 25. Not long after the whole story of Mount Sinai, we read about something called the tabernacle. When you get to Exodus 25, look at verse 8. This is Yahweh speaking. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle, that's a word that means tent, and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, that seems like a weird detail to zero in on, and I, I know, but this is actually a huge deal in context. In the ancient world, gods were understood to be spatially located. So there was a god of a certain mountain or a god of the sea or a god of the forest. And into that worldview is written Exodus in which Yahweh, the creator God, is not relegated to a mountain or a river. He's the God over all things. But what this very big God wants is to go with his people as they wander around in a tabernacle or a tent. He wants to go camping with Israel. Wherever they go, he wants to be with them. And so from here on, Exodus becomes this detailed instruction manual for how to build this tent that Yahweh will inhabit. Really fascinating stuff. It showcases Yahweh's concern for artistry and God's aesthetic and his value for creative craftsmanship. And then turn over to Exodus 40. Let's read how the book concludes. Skip down to Exodus 40, verse 34. The dark cloud covered the tent of meeting. So they're, they're no longer on Sinai. Now the cloud is down in the camp with Israel. And the glory of Yahweh, here meaning his, his presence and his beauty, the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Now, stay with me. We're getting there. Fast forward a few hundred years to 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, Israel is now long out of the desert, living in Canaan, where the capital city is Jerusalem. And here, in 1 Kings chapter 8, there's this new kind of tabernacle, but it's called the temple, and it stays in one place. It doesn't get carried around as Israel wanders in the deserts because they're no longer wandering one place, one time. So let's read 1 Kings 8, beginning with verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of Yahweh. So again, with the cloud. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled his temple. And then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So God's presence, if you're tracking in the story, it was on the mountain on Sinai, and then it came down and filled up the tabernacle, and now it has moved and it has filled up the temple. 
And this is kind of at the high point in Israel's story. Big ceremony, opening the temple, Yahweh's glory comes in, inhabits it. It's amazing stuff. Thing is, as amazing as all of it was, this glory was only really available to a select few. Only one male could enter the area called the Holy of Holies in the temple. And even then, only once a year on a day called Yom Kippur, it was a whole thing. The high priest wore a rope around his leg so that if he died from the sheer magnitude of his experience in the Holy of Holies, the other guys could, you know, just sort of pull the rope and drag the, the corpse out, which would be a huge drag. That's the... Um, Really? That's it? Come on. That's my... Scott's laughing. It's the third time I've used that uh, joke. There's more coming. Not tonight, but you'll see. I'll let some time pass. You'll, you'll learn to appreciate it more. Point is, uh, this was like this celebratory landmark in Israel's history. God's presence has entered the temple, but access to it was severely restricted. And even that doesn't last. Israel rebels again against Yahweh. They worship other gods. And after centuries of patience, Yahweh allows Israel's sin to compound on itself. And they are invaded by foreign pagan Babylon and sent into exile. And eventually the temple is destroyed. And that's where we're going next. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 10. No shame whatsoever in consulting the table of contents. I know you didn't come prepared for Ezekiel, but here we go. Ezekiel 10 is a few hundred years after our last story. So a long time has gone by. Israel is now long gone from their home. Jerusalem is a wasteland. And then we read this in verse 18. Then the glory of Yahweh departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim while I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of Yahweh's house and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Now there is a lot of weird stuff here, but notice this. Each story we read in route to this one was about Yahweh's presence entering or arriving somewhere, Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple. But this story is about God's presence doing what? What's that? Leaving. leaving. Thank you. Yeah, there's a gap here. It's hard for me to hear. And I can't hear great on top of that anyway. It's leaving. It's actually a really haunting scene. And from this point on in the story, God's presence is just gone. It's not in the temple, obviously. It's not in Jerusalem at all. It's not up on a mountain or in a tent. It's just gone. But then turn a few pages into Ezekiel to chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. In this story, as time marches on, Ezekiel and the other prophets, they begin to look forward to a day in the future when God's Spirit would come back. This particular passage, Ezekiel 37, is the prophet's vision of a dry valley littered with sun-bleached skeletons. And it's a metaphor of the desolation of Israel because of their sin and rebellion and injustice and worshiping other gods. And it's one of my favorite artistic visuals poured out from God's aesthetic imagination in the whole Bible. Look at Ezekiel 37, verse 11. He said to me, Son of man, here this is God referring to the prophet as a human or a son of man. These bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what sovereign Yahweh says, my people, 
I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and I have done it, declares Yahweh. Skip down to verse 27. My dwelling place will be what? With them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, Yahweh, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. So it's this incredible, vivid picture of Israel as decomposed in a lifeless death state apart from God's spirit. French artist uh, Gustave Doré famously depicted this scene in this incredible etching. It's one of my favorite pieces of his. Oh, I didn't actually put it in there. <laughs> what a bummer. Did you know that that was coming when you were, could you see it in front? Yeah, poor Garrett. He's up there like, oh, he's not going to like this. Trust me, it's amazing. <laughs> this man etched it. You know, have you ever seen Doré's uh, work? He, go look it up. Valley of Dry Bones. Gustave Doré. Wow, this really doesn't translate to the podcast. They couldn't see it anyway. Anyway, so in this vivid picture, the prophet learns not only that Israel will one day return to the land from which they've been exiled, but better still, one day the presence of God himself will return to Israel. But there's more. When God's spirit returns to Israel, he is going to put his very spirit, not on a mountain, not in a tent, not in a temple, but in his people. At this point in the story, this is absolutely unheard of. God's spirit in the story of the scriptures, the one that hovered over the waters in creation, it would show up like on a noteworthy king or a prophet from time to time, but that was rare and unique and usually kind of situational. Maybe the spirit, God's presence would show up in a cloud or, or on Sinai or the Holy of Holies where the priest could enter once a year. Sure, that makes sense. But here, Ezekiel sees a day in the future when God's spirit would be in his people, all of them. Which brings us to the New Testament, John chapter 1, Jesus of Nazareth. You guys still with me? Yes. Great, thank you very much. We're almost there. Stay with me. Now, between the exile, which is where we kind of left off, and Jesus of Nazareth, what we're about to read, you've got about 400 years or so. It's a very long time. And in that stretch, you know, a lot happened. The temple was destroyed and then rebuilt, but there is zero indication that God's presence has returned to the temple or to Israel at all. So it's a somber picture. The Jewish people are back in their land and the temple has been rebuilt, but it is empty. God's, meaning God's presence isn't there. Thus, the people of Israel are still waiting for Ezekiel's vision, the promise from Yahweh to come to fulfillment. And then it does, but not the way anyone was expecting. Let's read John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That word dwelling is skeno'u in Greek, and it means more literally tabernacle. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And verse 14 goes on. 
We have seen his glory. That's that same exact language from Exodus. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So John is deliberately evoking the same imagery, the glory of God, the cloud on the mountain and in the camp. And only now all that same power and glory is in a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now we're almost done. Turn one book to the right to Acts chapter 2. Stay with me. We're almost there. We're just now at this point in the story, a few weeks after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has returned to the Father, and a relatively small group of his followers are now in Jerusalem waiting for something Jesus promised would happen. And then we read this in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, the disciples of Jesus. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, not relegated to a mountain or a tent or a temple or even to Jesus. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time in the history of the cosmos. And because of that, everything changes. Now, before we stop, let me just show you one thing. Turn one more time, a couple of books to the right, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, this is several years after the story of Acts. The movement of Jesus is now spread out throughout the ancient Mediterranean. And one apprentice of Jesus called Paul writes a letter to a new church of Jesus' disciples in a city called Corinth. And he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So the temple, in fact, lives on, but the temple is now all disciples of Jesus, which is you and me. And for many of us, that whole, you know, my body is a temple language is familiar enough. But hopefully, with all of that context, we can now see the magnitude of this idea that the wild, powerful thunder and lightning, fire on the mountain presence of God was once localized on a mountain and then in a tent and then in a temple and then in one man, Jesus of Nazareth. And now it is in us. And together, we are the church. This. You've likely heard popular expressions like, the church is a people, not a building. And that's true. But where those expressions are, I think, a bit misleading is that they are often used to beat up on what we're doing right now. The whole, hey, man, I don't need to come to the Sunday gathering because the church is a people, man, not a... <laughs> I don't know where the... I don't know. I don't know. I didn't actually premeditate the voice or anything. It's not a building, you know, that whole thing. I, I've said it many times in my younger years. And the problem with that is that for more than 2,000 years, disciples of Jesus, the world over, have come together in regular rhythms of gathering together to worship and study and eat and drink, take communion. Paul's language is actually plural. You together are that temple. Something 
unique, something special happens when we get together like this. It may not always seem that way, but we are always a collected vessel of God's indwelling presence. And it's not true of the church only. Later in this same letter, Paul has to correct this church in Corinth for all kinds of sexual immorality. And listen to the logic he employs to explain himself. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies." The you there is singular. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's not yours only. Over and against the whole my body, my choice rhetoric of both pro-choice and anti-vaccine activists alike, you are not your own. Your body is the place where God is. So the story of the Bible unfolds this way. God is with his people in ultimate intimate closeness, but we sabotage that intimacy and are put out of God's presence. But God refuses to let the story end this way. His presence comes to his people on Mount Sinai, but then even closer in the tabernacle and in the temple, but the presence is restricted and humanity remains desperate to force God away and unfaithful people worshiping other gods, refusing God's love, practicing injustice. So God's presence leaves the temple. But remember, this is a story about God's relentless pursuit of his beloved. So God's presence comes back, this time in Jesus of Nazareth. And because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Spirit finally, after millennia of waiting, arrives this time in each and every one of us. But you already know, we are still broken. And the world is still broken. So God is always with us, but we are not always with God. And that is still not the end of the story. The end of the story is on a coming day with something called the renewal of all things, when God's intimate, undeniable presence is once again over every square inch of the entire cosmos, when he is truly with his people in the complete, undeniable, uninhibited sense as he was in the beginning and will be in the end. Amen. That is the story of the Bible. Phew. Okay, now, we talk all the time about Jesus being with us. And I don't just mean Van City Church. I mean Christianity, the, the movement of Jesus. If you've ever been around church for a minute or two, you've likely noticed that people who follow Jesus claim to believe that God is neither distant nor aloof. He is with us. And that's one of Jesus' names, Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of the last things Jesus said before he returned to the Father is, I am with you always. But how? I mean, technically, you know, he's not here physically, clearly. My kids really struggle with this one, the whole idea of like, is he invisible? Is he in the room? And I was doing this running comedic bit all the time now where she's like, oops, sat on Jesus when she sits in a chair or something. I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. Don't do that. (laughs) He's not just here symbolically. That's not what we believe theologically. We believe it's more than a symbol. It's more than a vibe, more than an idea. But how? How is this reality, the promise of Jesus, so precious to his followers down throughout church history, how is it actually true? Jesus is with us 
through the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence. And in the story of the Bible, God has gone to great lengths to be with his beloved. That's you. So the question then becomes, are you with him? And here's what I'm getting at with all of this. A few weeks ago, we talked about the personhood of the Spirit, God's Spirit, the way he is with us. He's a he, not an it, not a force. He's a person. And that matters because you can be in a relationship with a person. You can't be in a relationship with an abstract concept or a symbol or a force. And we talked about the reality of the Spirit's power, how Jesus did miracles and he healed the sick and he raised the dead, he cast out demons, all that crazy stuff. And he did that not by being God. He was, but that's not how he did it. How do we know? Because as the story carries on, his followers continue to do all the same things. We're not God, clearly. Maybe the power to do miracles seems to you far-fetched and impractical, and that's fine. But this is more about more than magic tricks. This is about God's empowering presence at work in and through you as you work and love and parent and relate to other people and find your way in the chaos of life in the world. If the power that was in Jesus to cast out demons and restore sight to the blind is alive in me, if that's true, well, good grief. I would at least very much like to access that power just to be a better dad or husband or friend or artist or on down the list. But since the Spirit is a person, not a force, we don't access the Spirit's power by channeling energy from an abstract force, by trying to tap into a concept. We access the power and presence of the Spirit through our relationship with Him, by being with the Spirit of Jesus. And it's out of this withness that we do the things that Jesus did and tap into the things the Spirit does. Now, as the weeks go on, we're going to talk a lot about what it means to be filled with the knowledge of God, about intimacy with the living God as the beloved of God. The more intimacy with God, the more the work of the Spirit can flow in and through you. How do we have intimacy with God? Through His Spirit. There are moments in time when being with God seems easier than others. Maybe during a particular stirring session of worship, if that's your thing, or maybe during quiet meditative prayer for others of you, maybe in moments of profound joy or even in the desperation of life or during suffering for a lot of us. Problem is, those times make up the minority of our everyday lives. And I don't want the, the power of God made manifest in my life held hostage by whether or not worship was awesome or if my week was particularly spiritual feeling or joyful. I want the power of the Spirit working at my desk or in conversations with my family over dinner or watching a movie with my friends. I want closeness to God throughout all of life. This is why Dallas Willard wrote, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds, which I admit is much easier said than done, but it's not impossible. One noteworthy figure who pursued this as an inspiring lifelong dream was the medieval monk, uh, Brother Lawrence. He found a way to experience God's withness and the ordinary rhythms of washing dishes in a monastery. He wrote this, For me, the time of business does not differ from the time of prayer. 
And in the noise and clutter of my kitchen, I possess God in the same great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. So, to end tonight and to set up the weeks that follow, if you want the person and power of God's Spirit, you need to pursue His presence. So let me offer just a handful of practical suggestions, practices, things to begin, experiment with, rediscover in the weeks to come. The first is the easiest, most basic, and often repeated, begin the day by being with God. As predictable and ordinary as that sounds, there's a reason that Jesus was big on the whole pray in the morning thing. I have conducted my life in ongoing stretches both with and without spending my mornings with God. And for me personally, the difference between the two is indisputable. Every morning, I get up before the rest of my family. I exercise first so that I'm fully awake and alert. And while it's still dark with everyone still asleep, I sit in the quiet and I pray. And I open the scriptures and I meditate and I listen. Now, your approach doesn't have to look exactly like mine and it doesn't have to seem as involved if you're new to this or getting back into it. My suggestion is just this. Get up 10 minutes earlier than usual. Find just a small window of quiet to stop and say, good morning, God. Is there anything that you want to say to me this morning before I begin my day? And listen, there's actually a great little app. This is probably the first and last time you'll hear me recommend an app. Um, But it's by the folks at 24-7 Prayer. It's called Lectio 365. And it has daily scripture readings, prayer prompts. It's about under 10 minutes, eight minutes or so. Really fantastic stuff. Beautiful Lectio 365. This, again, is probably, that's it. That's my last app recommendation, so enjoy it. But then the idea is don't stop with the morning. Create rhythms. Uh, My watch beeps every day at 2 p.m., and I stand up from what I'm doing, I take a short walk, or I just sit down somewhere. Or if I'm, you know, in some kind of chaotic moment or driving in a car, I just stop what I'm doing for a moment. Again, take a deep breath, and I say, good afternoon, Jesus, I'm here. I want to be with you. Is there anything you want to say to me? And then wait again, listen, for a minute or two. I've been in this rhythm, the morning, the afternoon, for a few years now, And what I've found is that these times aren't always profound for me, as they sound for Brother Lawrence in his kitchen. The more I embrace these rhythms, the more I feel myself stretching comfortably into the spaces between them, meaning I find myself praying throughout the day, even in the busyness of my day, because I am becoming more aware of God's presence. I find myself recalling something that God said at 1 p.m. while I'm brushing my teeth before bed, knowing that he's with me then. And then in the ordinary normalcy of life, suddenly I have intimacy with the Spirit because of a moment I spent with him when my watch beeped earlier in the day. When I pray over my kids before they sleep at night, I'm telling them what I think God has to say about them because I prayed for them in the morning and I listened. I want to become someone who is like Brother Lawrence, always in two places at once, on a walk and with God, at the movies and with God, laughing with my wife, Abby, and with God. Don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way comparing myself to Brother Lawrence or Dallas Willard, but I'm saying that in my experience, this withness that Jesus promised is actually available to us, but it is not coerced. 
because that's not how God works. And it doesn't take a monastery or 40 days of fasting to find it. It's here, it's now, it's in you. You don't need a mountain or a temple. That same powerful sacred presence is in your kitchen. It's on your couch. It's on the sidewalk down Main Street. It's between the pages of your favorite novel. It's on your commute. It's in a conversation over dinner. We have access to the empowering presence of God himself in us. And the more we find it, the more we find the person of that same spirit in our lives and in the world around us. When that same presence bleeds over into more than just a prayer walk, but words from God for you, for other people. And it becomes healing in your life and over the people for whom you've been praying. And it becomes confidence to step out or risk or emboldened by the felt presence of God in his spirit. It begins expressed in worship, in conversation, in conviction, repentance from sin, healing. My prayer is that we would continue to become a family who realizes more and more every day what we already have, that God is with us by his spirit and that we can be with him. So let's pray that it would be so before we worship again. Father, we're both amazed by and grateful for access to you, that when we talk, you listen, that when we talk, no matter what we're doing or where we are, the God of the universe sees fit to turn his ear and listen. My child has something they want to say. My beloved daughter is talking. My beloved son. Not only that, you act on the things that we tell you. And that things in the world and our own lives and the lives of other people are different because we ask. This is something that many of us have grown up around and some others of us are new to it. In either way, it's a very difficult concept around which to wrap our minds. So we are asking for your patience. We are asking for your graciousness. And we are asking that you would, as a gesture of your gracious patience, come and find us this evening in this room right now. We are not asking to be floored and dazzled. We are not asking you to do tricks. We know that you are not at our beck and call, that you are God. But we are asking you to make your presence known to us. I don't know what that looks like for any of you guys right now. Um, for me, sometimes it's actually a felt sense of God's nearness. For other times, it's because he says something, and by that I mean a scripture comes to mind. He puts a word or an image in my imagination, and because of it, I know that God is alive, speaking, close. And sometimes it's honestly just a quiet stretch of space where I can shut away the distractions for a few minutes and be aware of God. And the more my awareness closes in on God and his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, the closer he feels. So before we worship, let's just spend a few minutes making space for the presence of God. Let me pray over you guys. And if you're up for it, you can wait and listen. If this is all new to you, feel free to just sit back and wait. But if you're up for it, then join me in your heart and your mind as I pray this over you. Father, we want to be with you. We don't want to go through the motions of church 
as if they are little more than mechanisms through which we proceed. We sing a song, we listen to a guide talk, we take communion. We want to do all of this with you, not without you. And we acknowledge that we are distracted, that we are hard-headed, that we are clouded by sin and pain and suffering and chaos of life in the world, our own frustrations with life and with the world around us. But you're good and you're kind and you're merciful and so amazingly gracious. Would you see fit to come to us wherever we're at in this room right now and make yourself known to us, not with dazzling tricks or some kind of sign from heaven, but with some felt sense of your presence, a scripture, a word, an image in our minds, a felt sense. Would you come and be with us? Enable us by your spirit to be with you and disable any attempt of the enemy to distract. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.